0: All right, we begin today's session nine of the Leaven of Liturgy. We've worked our way through to the Sursum Corda, the Preface, the proper Preface, which goes in between, and the Sanctus, uh, in a, a very important, and you could almost say transitional part of our liturgy here. the The gears are shifting. We just completed the... The fullness of the offertory, which concludes with the confession and absolution. And we're really turning our attention now from ourselves to God. The, the the very nature of the Sursum Corda is hearts lifted high or lift up your hearts, which is the translation. So we have been focused on ourselves and our offering and our uh, hearing of the word our, our uh, statement of belief in the creed our offering of our tithes and our, the bread and the wine and our prayers and the uh, prayers for the, state of, the whole state of Christ church we've offered our confession, our absolution we've received comfortable words and now the attention is turning it's getting it's elevating at this point it's a very important moment in the liturgy and so we should pray. The Lord be with you. And with Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who has committed to thy holy church the care and nurture of thy people, enlighten with thy wisdom those who teach and those who learn, that rejoicing in the knowledge of thy truth, they may worship thee and serve thee from generation to generation, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right. If I can get this little remote control thing here to work. Yes. All right, the leaven of liturgy. But first, a question was asked at the end of the last uh, session when I had less than 30 seconds to answer the question. And I thought, oh, that's a can of worms. Um, However, that can of worms, if ever there was a time to open that can of worms, the can of worms to be opened would be right, or the time would be right now, right before the consecration, right at the sursum corda, right at this point of the liturgy, that is the perfect time to ask this question and to answer this question. So we are going to slow down and stop a little bit on this question and hopefully uh, bring some light on the subject, uh, some clarity. Annie, get your gun. I'm not a musical person, but this is the song, uh, Anything You Can Do, I Can Do Better, when the two guys, yes, I can no, you can't, yes, I can't, no, you can't. Okay, so, uh, but first, why can't women be priests was the question that was asked, or, or rather the question was, how could we have a hard time defending that notion? And in this world today, you would have a hard time defending that notion because the world is less and less listening to the type of logic that the church uses. So you have to be familiar with the world and the type of logic that the church is using. First of all, it should be acknowledged, women are often better teachers, better administrators, better counselors, better encouragers. Women are often, I would say always, women are often more compassionate, cooperative, pastoral, devout, prayerful, Dedicated and self-sacrificing, and I'm sure the list could go on and on. The question is not, uh, "Are men more these things?" Because I think we would probably fail if, they, if that was the question. Missing the point, however, and this is a this is a portion where the logic um, sometimes doesn't doesn't occur to those who are asking the question why can 't women be priests? Uh, the que- the, uh, well, let 's just say uh, the, the kind of questions that are asked these days are isn 't it time isn 't it time after all these years that 's a question that misses the point isn 't it fair? That could be a legitimate question, except it misses the point isn 't it more equal? That sounds like a good question, but it misses the central point. Isn't the church's position male chauvinist? That's a good question, but it still misses the point. All the questions, and I'll say almost every argument, even excellent arguments for women's ordination to the priesthood typically avoid the foundational question, what is a priest? That question is always avoided or circumvented in some way, And so the question, what is a priest, is the harder one to ask and answer, but it has to be in order to understand why the church would take a position like that. Uh, The quick answer, I'll tell you this image, which is, it's a modern image. It's a famous one. It comes up oftentimes. But if you didn't have to say anything, the picture would do it. Um, What is a priest? A priest is an alter Christus another Christ, okay? So here's this priest standing at the altar, consecrating the body and blood of Christ as, the, as Christ is there. He consecrated his own body and blood to give to us. That priest standing there isn't just saying words. He's standing in the person of Christ, which we also say in persona Christi. He's standing in the person of Christ. That person, that particular, specific person who had a nature fully divine and fully human and was incarnate as male. I always like to say, if Christ was incarnate, if the second person of the Trinity was incarnate as female, all priests would be female, and we would never allow a male to be a priest because the person who stands there is standing in the person of Christ. But a priest, what is a priest? A priest is one who offers sacrifice, The great high priest. Okay? And ordained, the ordained priest represents, or represents, same word, represents the body and blood of Christ, participating in the full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice once offered for the sins of the whole world. Is this a significant thing? Yes, it's very significant. A priest is one who offers sacrifice. Does the priest at the altar of a Christian church offer a new sacrifice? No. He participates in the one full, true, perfect sacrifice given for all sins for all time. But the participation in that one sacrifice is the sacrificial action of the Eucharist. It's not simply representational in the sense of uh, uh, symbols. There is a symbol there, but it's more than a symbol. There's a representation, but it's more than a representation. There is a remembering there, but it's more like remembering as opposed to dismembering than it is to recalling. We're very cerebral in the 21st century. We think uh, uh, very cerebrally, which makes sense. The tradition of the church. Okay, so here's another way to talk about it. The priesthood of the Old Testament is exclusively male. And Jesus only calls and ordains male disciples to fulfill that priesthood, gather that, fulfill that priesthood. And what's this picture of? This is a picture of Hannah presenting her son at the temple to the priest Eli. Remember, she uh, was barren. She was given a son and she promised the Lord that she would give her son to the temple if only she could have a son. Here she presents her Uh, male son to the male priesthood uh, is true the pastoral epistles of St. Paul make no mention of women when describing the priesthood of the New Testament of the church and the episcopacy of the church that is bishops no mention and there has been no question of women's ordination until the cultural upheaval of the sexual revolution in the 1960s and that's really when it started and so we could ask ourselves, what are the odds? There is a chance that the Old Testament, Jesus, the apostles, and all of the first 2,000 years of the church, all of that history represent a misogynist culture that is repressive to women. There's a chance, okay? And there's a chance that in the last 60 years, the church has arrived at her full maturity with the ordination of women, but the last 60 years of the church bear marks of disintegration, not maturity. And you actually start to see things becoming more and more confusing and more and more confused and divided in the church in the last 60 years. And the Roman Catholic Church is wrestling with this right now. The Synod, you know, Synod on Synodality in Germany, they're really going to tackle this. And if the church... Makes a confusing statement about it it 's going to be trouble and be trouble for a long time. Uh, anyhow, you have uh, a question there about what I would say are if you had to if you were a betting person, where, where would you put your money on what uh, has the church always been wrong about this and just now, in one of the more confusing eras of our history in this country and in the world, we got it right. That's a question you should ask yourself. What are the stakes, though? Um, this, is, this is perhaps uh, the most important element of this. More importantly, the Church has always presumed that the validity of the sacraments depend upon the validity of the priesthood. That is the rationale of the Roman Catholic Church, of the Anglican Church, of the Orthodox Anglican Church, and of the Eastern Orthodox Church. The Eastern Orthodox Church is not even a question. It doesn't even come up. This is not on the table. Because the, the validity of the whole sacramental nature of the church depends upon the validity of the priesthood. We're not even going to touch it. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church is starting to waffle. And the Episcopal Church, the, uh, the Anglican Church in the world, has already split over it. Okay, um, But that validity of the sacraments is is really what the hinge point is. And you notice how, as the discussion gets closer to the point, the question of civil rights actually isn't really a part of it anymore. And and this is where the two groups are talking past each other, I believe. One side wishes primarily to stand up for women's rights and equality, which is great. But the other side wishes primarily to protect the means of grace provided by the church for the salvation of souls, which is the point. So to make an excellent point that misses the point has to be recognized for what it is, an excellent point that misses the point. Back to the question, what even is a priest? And we're getting to the Sursum Chord, you'll see. (laughs) Is the priesthood primarily a state of being or is it primarily a function? Is it something that someone does or is it something that someone is, is the question. If it's primarily a state of being, something that someone is, if it's primarily a state of being for males to which Christ has delegated his ministry, then we should work to protect that state from dissolution, confusion, and invalidness. But if it's primarily a function, then truly anyone can do it. When a church does not mind who is the minister, it tells you, That the, the view of the ministry in that church is functional. It's essentially anybody could do it. It just happens to be this person today. The theology of the historic church has not been functional. It's been ontological. It's been what is that thing? What is that church? What is a priest? Those are the questions, including what is a sacrament rather than what does it do? It does something, but it is something first. Those are, those are, real. that's really a central uh, question. It's actually a central question for our time, as people ask, what is the church? Well, the church is a place where things happen, eh, um, or the church has a mission. If the church is primarily a mission, what happens when the mission is accomplished? dissolve the church. We don't need it anymore because it accomplished its mission. It did its thing, and now it's not needed anymore. It dissolves. Is that the church that St. Paul talks about that uh, is built on the cornerstone of Christ, the apostles and prophets, as foundational, and you are being built up into a dwelling place for God himself? When you accomplish your mission, you dissolve? My point, obviously, is that it's not a function it's an ontology. It's a state of being. It is something. Um, but what if you're wrong? Okay. Let's say, let's say the historic church's position is wrong. And the male character of the priesthood is not essential. The sacraments remain valid. And the church has needlessly offended women for 2,000 years or more. If you consider the Old Testament. That's if, that's if the historic church is wrong. Okay. If the historic church is right, then female priests are lay people and their sacraments are invalid. And the church is deprived, the church under their ministry is deprived of sacramental grace. And the women are complicit in the injuring of the church and are themselves injured because they've spent their lives acting as priests, but they haven't been in an ontological sense. They've been doing a function of a priest without the actuality, without the substance of the priesthood behind it. You have your your choice. There's a possibility that the historic church has always been wrong um, and that there has been a needless offense caused. There is a chance that the historic church is right. And then if the church is right, there's a whole section of, of the church that's being injured currently and is going to be perpetually injured for generations to come. That's where the scales go and where you have to pick a side. Um, Our church is on the side believing that the historic church was correct. And so uh, the offense may come, but hopefully uh, women would understand that the nature of this is not an, an intentional offense. The nature is and intent to pr- preserve the validity of the sacramental church and prevent women from injuring the church or themselves by trying to have uh, what we call... Uh, uh, by s- essentially saying that the sexes are interchangeable. This is not unrelated to the question of are the sexes interchangeable? Can a man be a mother... Is a question that used to be a a fantastic illustration for the nature of the priesthood and now you actually have to answer the question because it used to be people would say well obviously a man can't be a mother even though he feels called to be a mother even though he's he's got all the skills of being a mother he can't be a mother because ontologically he can't be he's male and so uh, that that uh, question, can the sexes be interchanged without anything being damaged or any violence being done? The church's historic answer is no. Violence will always be Mm -hmm. done to a person who is going to try and force this to go the other way. There will be violence that's done. These days, uh, physical violence is done to a male to make him a woman. Physical violence. He's asked for it. There's hospitals that'll do it. We would say that's a physical violence that's unnecessary. And can the church uh, say that we have interchanged the sexes, the sexes no longer have a meaning, that representational element or that, that in persona Christi theology has always been wrong, and no violence will come to the church, no harm. I'm not convinced. <laughs> and that's the position of, of our church. So uh, that's probably not an easy way to describe to people what, why churches like ours Uh, hold the position that we do. But, uh, nevertheless, it gets closer. I don't know if that helps. (laughs) Um, Back to the question, though, what does a priest do? Once again, a priest is one who offers sacrifice, and the ordained priest represents the body and blood of Christ at the altar, participating in the full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice once offered for the sins of the whole world. And here's Aaron offering sacrifice in the Old Testament that was not once offered for the sins of the whole world. It was not full, perfect, and sufficient. It was a type that was to be fulfilled in Christ's perfect sacrifice. And you could say, well, why don't we just, not, why don't we just have services that simply uh, are sermons reminding us of this thing that happened 2,000 years ago? Because the Lord has provided us an apostolic ministry in which that one perfect, full, and sufficient sacrifice that he offered is constantly offered again to us, not again and again and again, but a participation in, so that your sacrifice of yourself, your soul, and your body, as imperfect as it is, can be joined with his perfect sacrifice. And as you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you have... uh, what we talk about as the priesthood of all believers. And someone else asked me that who's not in the room right now. I have to listen to the recording. Uh, there is a priesthood into which all Christians are ordained. And the central act of that priesthood is also offering sacrifice. The priesthood of all believers. St. Paul says in uh, actually St. Peter says you yourselves like living stones. Here's that construction idea again are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, a royal priesthood. The whole church is spoken of as a royal priesthood in that way. And what does a priest do? Offer, makes offering. Okay, now we're at the Cirrus corda Okay, we've had an offertory, where we've offered everything that we can possibly offer, we thought, until we get to this portion and we say, The priest says to you, lift up your hearts, which is an imperative. But originally it was a statement like hearts lifted high and the people respond. We lift them up unto the Lord. The final and most perfect oblation, sacrifice and offering is yourself, your heart, your will. We offer up. Let us give thanks unto our Lord God, Eucharist. It is meet and right, so to do. Why should, we, uh, why should we participate in the Eucharist? Because we're afraid of what will happen if we don't. Okay, I mean, that's a motivation, you know, fear of punishment. That's like the lowest form. That's, you know, Johnny, clean your room or you won't You get a spanking or something like that. Are you allowed to say that? <laughs> you won't get your candy. Or that, That's the second motivation. If you uh, clean up your room, you will receive a reward. Okay, that's that's a better motivation than fear of condemnation. But the best reward or the best motivation is that it's meet and right. So to do it's just right, true, perfect, beautiful. It's meet and right. So to do. Uh, Let us give thanks unto the Lord our God. Let us lift up our hearts. It is just meet and right. It's perfect. It's the perfect thing to do. This Sersum Corda is actually uh, first recorded in the Anaphora of the Apostolic Tradition, which is a historic uh, liturgical document from the 3rd the century, early 3rd century, Hippolytus. This is, apart from the salutation, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit. This is the oldest recorded portion of the liturgy that isn't just a section of the New Testament. So when we say, the Lord be with you and with thy spirit, lift up your hearts, we lift them up unto the Lord, let us give thanks unto our Lord God as meet and right so to do. That's about the oldest Christian prayer that you can possibly offer. And actually, even the Sursum Corda is older than itself. Because the second pair, let us give thanks unto the Lord as meet and right so to do, are taken from the Jewish benediction of the cup of blessing in the Passover. It is the blessing that's set at the third cup out of four cups at the Passover. And this is not to be missed. This is the third cup, which is taken after supper. Okay? Does this sound familiar? After supper, he took the cup. (laughs) I can chill just thinking about it. Okay, so you have just taken into your mouth the words, Let us give thanks unto the Lord. It is meet and right so to do, which were the words of Christ when he took the cup after supper and were just about to take the cup Okay, it's it's. I'm just saying, uh, you notice how the focus here is no longer on ourselves anymore. We're starting to look to something perfect that is happening, meet and right, up there at the altar. Um, that's that's old right there. That's from uh, the Passover liturgy. After supper, he took the cup. But the first pair, "Lift up your hearts," we lift them up unto the Lord, is a Christian addition. So the Christians, when they started to, to codify literature, or literature, liturgy, uh, they said, we've got something to add to that, which is sursum corda. Lift up your hearts, we lift them up to the Lord. We have completed the offertory of our tithes, our offerings, our bread and wine, the prayers for all and our confession. And now the priestly act of all the faithful takes place, lifting up and offering our hearts the best that we can offer. And this is what we try to accomplish. I've been talking with Michael Rock about architecture. We try to accomplish this sensibility in the architecture. We try to get people to walk into a room and have it happen automatically. You walk into your room and like a cathedral like this, and your heart is already lifted up. You're already lifted up. So that when the priest says, lift up your hearts, you say, oh, finally, I'm here. It's meet and right so to do. I'm in the right place at the right time. And the Lord is present. Um, Sursum corda.
1: Amen. Amen. Okay.
0: (laughs) And so we go on. But we're willing to uh, accept our gable roof and, uh, what is it called, a gable roof? (laughs) I forget. Anyway, our vaulted ceiling. Take it for what it's worth. It's the best we can do, which is the best you can offer is, is what you've got. So we've offered the best we can at St. George's. We move on, though, to the preface where we say this. It is very meet, right, and our bounden duty that we should at all times and in all places give thanks unto thee, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty, Everlasting God. The question is, who is we? Okay. Well, it's uh, everybody at 427 Batesville Road at 11 o'clock, well, 1123 or whatever it is, on Sunday morning. Yeah, except that we go on to say, Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name, evermore praising thee and saying, we'll get there, we should at all times, and you are thinking 1123, 324, after I get up from my nap, just before supper, and right before bed. That's what you're thinking about at all times, or in the hard times and in the good times, you were thinking that. We should at all times, I'm saying in the year 1213, in the year 824, in the year 429, and in all places, in Constantinople, in Ethiopia, in Moscow, In Tokyo, with all angels, with angels and archangels in heaven, and and if Dante's right, then all these levels of heaven, (laughs) with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name evermore, praising thee and saying, it is a worthwhile thing to worry about how many people showed up in church to some extent. But if you really understand what's going on, the walls of the church fall down and the roof is lifted off. And we're with the whole, hump, the whole company of heaven with all angels and archangels in all times and in all places. We. That's pretty good. Um, it's great to have people come to church. I would love for the church to be packed uh, all the time. But if three people show up, my heart does not sink for the worship. My heart sinks because where is everybody? But my my heart does not sink because the worship is now less. No, it is not. The only thing that's happening is some people are missing out. That's all. <laughs> I know you have other things to do, but you have nothing better to do, I guarantee you. We all say together, holy, 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 sanctus, sanctus, sanctus. Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Glory be to Thee, O Lord Most High. This is taken from Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah, who has said, uh, Woe is me, I am... Uh, what is What are the words he says? I am an unclean man, un, man of unclean lips, un, unclean people, essentially. When Isaiah sees God, he sees the seraphim surrounding him, crying out, Holy, Holy, Holy. And he knows... I don't belong here. Um, But but he's not let out, is he? The angel comes down and touches his lips with coal of fire, which is painful, but he's cleansed. And now he does belong here. Do you belong here? Good question. The answer is yes. (laughs) And that cleansing power of God is coming to you too. Actually, it just happened uh, in the confession and absolution. But at the book of Revelation... The four beasts of heaven also cry out, holy, holy, holy. Um, I don't know what else to say about that. That's pretty great. Um, but we have, we have at that moment um, joined ourselves quite literally in the words that we're saying with the heavenly host. And how do we know the heavenly host is saying that? Because it says it in Isaiah, and it says it in Revelation. Who else are you going to ask? That's what's happening in the heavenly realm. You've, You've joined yourself with it. And we have not only done this, we're about to declare his advent. The more I think about the timing of this class, it's perfect that at the end of the church here, Sunday next before Advent, we got to the place in the liturgy, it says, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And that's where we're going to end today, because at the beginning of Advent next Sunday, when we do Sunday school again, we're going to begin the consecration liturgy, the canon of the mass, which is Christ come present. And we'll, I'll drag it out, so we'll do it all <laughs> we'll do it, all through Advent. We'll do the canon, okay, the consecration. But here we are just before his advent in the Eucharist saying, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And where was that said? That was said at his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. The king is here. The kingdom of God is nigh because the king is here. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And of course, this portion uh, from Psalm 118 was omitted in the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. And like I say... Ever since the 1552, all the revisions have been trying to put things back in that were taken out at that time. But it has been reinserted. It's not in the 28, but it's been reinserted in the missiles. And most of our clergy just say it. So we say it anyway, and you say it with us. Uh, or you respond, Hosanna, in the highest. Uh, it is the cry of the triumphal entry. It's an Advent theme. Christ is coming. He's almost here. He's at the door. or right at the door of the consecration prayer. Triumphal entry in Advent theme, and it's the last thing said or sung before the priest turns to make Christ present in the sacrament. That's what's happening in the liturgy right there. And, you know, this, this, the whole idea of this class is the leaven of liturgy. And you're realizing that this isn't so much leaven as a fire hose, okay? It's just, it's coming at you so much that you have a couple of, of uh, potential solutions. One is make the liturgy less. Make it less, make it less. Water it down, water it down. Just get one good point every week and maybe that'll be enough. Or keep the fire hose coming. Every Sunday is a fire hose. And every every week you, it'll just hit you like, whoa, but maybe you'll catch one part of it this week. Maybe you'll catch that part that gets us ready for Advent. And you'll say... I'm going to contemplate this for a while. We're about to go into the can of the mess. I know I'm supposed to be listening, but I just caught Hosanna in the highest. And that was said at his triumphal entry. And this is his triumphal entry. Clergy do not have the freedom to stop and pause and contemplate each portion of the liturgy because I got to do the next part. But you all have the freedom to contemplate what's just been given to you. And if you missed 80% of it because it was coming so fast, that's okay. Come next week. We'll do it again. <laughs> Take notes, write a book. Uh, this is also why we don't change it every week because it's, it's so much and it's so good. You got to just have it again. Okay. It's like fried chicken. You, you, you can't just say, no, I'm just, that's terrible. <laughs> so that's some priest is going to confront me on that one day. Uh, But anyhow, that's our our, sursum corda, quarta preface and sanctus. And I'll I'll circle back and get to the the heels of our departure this morning where we're talking about women's ordination. The question really is and the point is for something as sacred and important and so tied to our salvation as this, does the church have the freedom to change it? whenever the, the the wind of the culture blows one way or the other, do we have the freedom to change it? Or is it something? If it is something, if the church is something, not just what we call it, then when you decide to step aside from the church, you haven't moved the church, you've moved yourself outside of the church. And when you lead people that way too, you're leading people outside of the church. And we say, no, if there's anything important in this world, it's this. And we must never lead people outside of it or away from it. You should always be pulling people in. If you, if you are insisted upon leaving, the door is open. I mean, you can always go. Just like St. George's, these doors, you can always get out. <laughs> people say, don't lock me in. You're never locked into the church. You can leave if you want. But it just happens to be the best place for you to be and the best place for your soul to be. And we're trying our very best to make sure that everything that is here and everything that's offered to you is as valid and sacred as it can possibly be. Um, I said in a conversation the other day, somebody stop me. So I'm stopping now. Does anyone have a question or a comment? Or uh, Yes, please, Janet. <clears throat> Okay, so the first Book of Common Prayer was 1549, and it was aiming to be uh, a via media between what reforms were going on in the world at that time and the Catholic Church. There was a via media, a middle way. In other words, what was uh, essential to the Roman Catholic Church was preserved, and what were some pretty logical and good, healthy reforms were also included. It was translated to the English language and made available to the common person, so that that clergy-lady divide wasn't such a chasm. But in 1552, the the uh, the force of the Reformation was pushing harder, and the 1549 Book of Common Prayer nobody liked because to the Roman Catholics it was too Protestant, and to the Protestants it was too Roman Catholic. Which is when you know you're right in the right spot. But the Protestants won. And they just in the 1552 started cutting out more and more and more, uh, and then ever since then revisions of the Book of Common Prayer have been generally putting things back in that were cut out. That's that's sort of why it was the fog of war. It was the 16th century. You can cut some slack, um, but it it was it anyway. It's. That's your answer. So, <laughs> Any other questions about Yes, Michael and then, then, then
1: Denise. I can a couple of references. This, this move towards media, the middle ground, in my view, has contributed to the moral de- degradation of the population of the earth. There's an article that I sent a copy to you in the New York Times about return of Latin in Catholic churches. is getting a wide acceptance. And those churches that now have Latin services are filling their churches again. That is an underlying symptom in our society. People are looking to get back to some stability, some stuff that way, a basis and a soundness. That the church has a responsibility not to change. What is is, and if that was it for two thousand years, it's going to be it for the next two thousand years. It does. When the church decides not to change. People don't see it as stable again, and they're going to be able to go back to the church. They don't see the church
0: as being stable now, so I can do whatever I want. I agree with your, your point about the stability of the church and that it is something. Latin is another discussion, because it wasn't always in Latin either. Uh, and also the Pope has just forbidden Latin. Uh, so, But a lot of churches are saying, you know what, we're going to do it anyway. I don't have a... One or two people I know, <coughs> Roman Catholic Church, but they're just going to do Latin anyway and ride this one out. But uh, you're right. When the church begins to drift with the culture and begins to ask, "What do you want us to be?" Well, it's all over then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't know if it's all over, but it's it's not a it's not a good not a good way to be. Uh, Denise. When you were in the preface talking about the we and the other walls. Right. Yeah. And we were in a
1: small church.
0: There weren't many people there. Yeah. And afterwards, he said, "Did you hear how loud it was in there?" Wow. And it was, you know, very. I mean, she that like, all the time. Right. He
1: heard. He, he said, heard something. Yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. I've also heard. I don't know if you've ever had this experience, but I, I know, I want to say two people that had something like a vision in, a, in a Eucharistic service. Like they opened their eyes, they saw something, they blinked, and it was gone. But what they saw was shoulder to shoulder, front to back, packed. Like the angelic realm was filling this room. And they closed their eyes and opened their eyes again, and it was gone. You you can say whatever you want about people having visions, but it reminds me of what you just said about Perry. And it makes me, uh, who spent a lot of time in a church growth movement kind of church, where it was the worst kick in the gut to show up and find not enough people today because that means we weren't selling we, we didn't advertise this right we didn't market it correctly uh, you know, what, what, do we, what do we need to do to get some people in this door and then when I came to the Anglican church I found there was not as much sweat about that because we knew that there was something here that was, that was more important than, than the entrepreneurial aspect of the church now, yes, there is. Uh, the thing is, once you've got something great, you want to let everybody know about it, too. And, and I do feel, it's funny, I don't feel bad uh, when we have a low attendance Sunday for myself. I feel bad for the people that are missing it. <laughs> and I guess I gotta, maybe I've got to talk about it better so that they'll get a sense of what's going on here. Because I, I, my, my, my vision of growth, I think that if we just let people know what this is and that it's happening in Simpsonville, we would double uh, not everybody, but there's a lot of people in Simpsonville Or I mean, not Simpsonville, Greenville, the whole, the whole place And that is what we're kind of working on Is letting people know that we exist You notice the trees came down, the fence came down The sign is new We're working on the website, we're doing all kinds of stuff like that But not because we're asking the world What do you want us to be? What, what can we do to get you to, you know Do we have to give free bratwurst And, and uh, Steins uh, beer out in the parking lot to get you in? Good idea yeah, yeah. Well, I always say you got lots of people. Well, you can give free hot dogs and fill your church with people. But what I want people to come for is because, like you said, something sacred and stable exists in this town. I didn't know it was there, and I set foot in the in the room, and I couldn't believe it, Bob. Yeah, it's oh,
1: this is real quick. It's not. It is the Latin mass, but it's not the Latin. Latin why they're going? It's because it resembles more our tradition. Yeah, you know the Latin mass has always been Latin English, and Denise, I hope, probably read the English part the whole time. So these the priest may be speaking in Latin, but the people are reading reading in English or the vernacular. So it's not so much that it's the Latin; it's because the priest is facing. Yeah, he's doing what you do and that's why they're going so we're on the right track
0: I think so that's what that
1: article said to me yeah,
0: yeah. now yeah and we got to stop here in a second but uh, something about the Latin that's great is number one I never understood uh, the benefit of Latin until I went to Jerusalem and there was a group of Japanese people that were uh, uh, celebrating the Eucharist in the uh, in Nazareth in the Church of the Annunciation. And it finally occurred to me. They probably, I don't know if they speak English, but it's in Latin and they understand it. And it's in Latin and a Nigerian would, well, Nigerians speak English, but, you know what I mean, a a country where they don't speak English uh, could understand it universally. That's fantastic. So I'm not against Latin. just so happens we're the English church, and part of our heritage is to speak the English language, but... Uh, but anyhow, it is not so much the, the way the words are said. It's the what, what the words are saying. But that Latin is a, is a heralding of, of tradition. And when people hear it, they say, oh, something that's not moving. You know. Anyhow, i got to stop. <clears throat> the end. Until next week.